You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. So glad that you're with us this morning, and I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. Our family had a wonderful vacation, and uh, we were gone for two and a half weeks. Many of you guys didn't even notice. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate that. Just kidding. You're not awake yet. That was a joke. And um, our family really, really did have a good time. So thank you. Many reached out and said you were praying for us. Thank you so much for that. Um, We are thankful for all your prayers, and we had a lot of fun. Um, But more importantly, um, we really did hear from God while we were on vacation. Um, We spent some time, uh, we spent a lot of time in his word together, and we spent a lot of time in his word individually while we were on vacation. And so we were able to be present, we were able to hear from God, we were able to invest in each other, and um, it was wonderful. But I will tell you, on vacation we realized, as we always do when we're away from the church, how much we need the body of Christ. And it's, it's wonderful to be on vacation. It's wonderful to be um, in a time that's not normal, um, but that's not normal, right? And uh, God prescribes that we are surrounded by a body that knows us and that loves us and that walks with us. And so we really did miss having community, uh, even though we, we loved vacation. We loved swimming every day and et cetera. We, we really did miss our community. We missed it for a number of reasons. We needed the body of Christ to encourage us. Um, we needed the body of Christ not to feel alone. I don't know if you're like me, but once you kind of get alone, you long for it. And then when you are, you're, you're saying, this ain't right. It's not good for, for me to be alone. I need, uh, I start believing lies. You start believing things that are not true. We needed the body of Christ to shelter us from the enemy and his lies. We needed the body of Christ to help keep biblical truth on our minds and in our hearts so we believe the right things. Um, we long to get back here to serve the body of Christ. Uh, you know, um, there's something about not using God's giftings um, and almost intentionally remaining stationary without exercising what God has gifted you in in a variety of different ways for the service of the body of Christ. There's something not right about that. We're not made to be like that. And, um, and so um, we long to get back to accomplishing kingdom purposes and, um, and instructing others, loving others, investing in others. We long to get back to thinking of even things that will benefit the body and then using um, our giftings for the service of the body of Christ, right? Meeting needs. Um, more particularly, we realized how much we love this body, how much we love this church, how much we love each one of you. And um, we've marveled at all that God had, has done, is doing in the life of this church, and um, all, we're anticipating all that he will do in the life of, of this church. And I will tell you that I prayed for you. I prayed for many of you, members by name, uh, visitors by name, people who have been coming for a little while, or uh, people who, are, who, who this is their home. Um, prayed for many of you by name every single day that we were gone. 
and um, as a church, and then also prayed for the things that we need God to do in this church and what we need him to do in the future of this church. And, um, and, uh, and especially for you guys as you grow towards maturity, which is the whole point of your Christian life after you're born again, that you'd grow towards maturity, as Ephesians 4 says. Uh, the saints need to become perfected. Um, that's the goal of your life. And by the way, everything will flow from you being perfected in Christ. And um, your whole life will change as you are matured, uh, specifically through the word of God. So that's what we're here to do right now. And I'm certainly thankful to be back to do it with you. So if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, would you please open it to Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Luke 17, 11 through 19. And that's where we are today. Um, this is the section that, um, that God in his providence has laid before us this morning. Um, as we just go verse by verse through the, the gospel of Luke, um, it's wonderful to know that as we approach Sunday mornings, God has decided what indeed he wants us to hear on a Sunday morning. And that's the wonderful thing about preaching expositionally, verse by verse through the scriptures. We don't get to pick, he picks for us. So this is what God wants us to hear this morning. In his providence from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, to the end of time, after the end of time, all of this was designed to on this day, you and I to be in this passage of his divinely inspired word. And so he definitely wants us to hear from it this morning. And uh, we're going to, just before we do, um, before we read the text, explain the text, and apply the text, which is all that we're doing in this time, right? We start with the text, we stay with the text. The text has everything we want to hear and everything that God says is in the text. So we're just going to read it, explain it, apply it, right? But before we do that, let's just recite for the first time our month's, uh, this month's corporate memory verse. If you're with us often, you know that as a church, we memorize a verse corporately, so isn't it wonderful? Everybody in all their various places of life are all memorizing one verse at the same time in the life of our church, and that verse is doing its work. Well, this month, we're going to memorize Romans 12.1. And so this morning, let's just recite it aloud together, okay? So say it with me out loud together. It'll be on the screen. Ready? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's say it one more time. Ready? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Wonderful. Listen, here's what I would do if I were you. Write this verse down. Bring it with you, put it in your pocket on a note card or, or write it down somewhere that you're going to see it and begin to just recite it for this week over and over and over again, okay? As it begins to, as you begin to meditate on it, the word says, you'll begin to love it and understand it and, um, and God will begin to cause you uh, to obey it and to live it out. And so... Um, it would be a huge win for you to write down this verse and just recite it over and over again this week as you're driving, um, as you're, you know, um, spending time with your family, et cetera. And I encourage you, get your family to memorize it, your kids and, and your spouse, okay? Well, now, let's move on 
to the passage God has given us this morning to focus on, and we'll begin as we always do by reading the text, okay? Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. Luke 17, 11 through 19. <clears throat> on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. What an incredible passage we have before us. Now, what we're seeing here in this passage is the superiority of salvation. The superiority of salvation. Okay? This is what we're seeing in this particular text. The superiority of salvation. That's why I've entitled this message. You can guess it. The superiority of salvation, because that's the main point of the section. The superiority of salvation. In other words, what really matters is having salvation. What really matters is experiencing salvation. What is truly important is truly being saved. It's more important than being healed of a disease. It's more important than being accepted or respected in society. It's more important than experiencing all experiential blessings that God could give you on earth. It's more important than having the culture's approval. It's more important than experiencing all of God's common graces. It's more necessary than having a good life. It's more meaningful than any benefit that you could possibly have on earth. It's more permanent than any advantage you could attain in this life. It's what should be sought after it's what should be rejoiced in. It's what should be truly desired. It's what, if we have it, we should be truly thankful for, and we should deep, be deeply content with, and we should count it as true gain. I have salvation. I have it all. 
It's what should be sought after with all of our hearts. Nothing else truly matters. If we have salvation through Christ, we should say, I have the most important thing that I could ever have. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Isn't that amazing? We should count salvation and this gracious, merciful miracle of God as the greatest miracle of your life. And you should never grow cold in your thankfulness for it. If you have it, you shouldn't look past your salvation and say, yeah, that's great and all, but what I really want is this. We're not seeing clearly. (laughs) Our glasses are fogged if we're feeling or thinking that way. Our brain is fogged. Our heart is fogged. You should say this, I've made it. I have the most important thing I could ever have. And I am so overly grateful for this salvation. What else could I ever need? This is the greatest thing that I could possibly have. I have it and I've won. You should count it as gain, true gain, and keep it ever before you. And not long for anything more than what you already have, which is salvation in Christ. And oftentimes we do look past it. And we do say, yeah, but if I only had this. Right? But we're not seeing salvation clearly when we feel that way. Think about this. Psalm 63 says, his love is better than life. Hebrews 2 calls it a great, what? What? Salvation. This is a great salvation, right? And we should spend our lives then growing in this salvation, cherishing this salvation, maturing in this salvation, sharing this salvation, letting service be a byproduct of salvation, thanking God for our salvation. Listen, if you are in Christ, you should never feel like you've lost because you don't have something else. You should never feel like you've lost because you have something else. You should constantly feel like you've won because you've made the decision to follow Christ. Because God has made you right before himself through reconciliation, through the atoning work of his son. That's God's gracious act on your life. Listen, think about what he's done if you know Christ. He has caused you to realize your sin. You were blind. You were walking by your own desires. Towards death. Think about this. Towards death. You were, you, you had no idea the condition of your soul, the the state of your soul, the condition of, of your sinful nature. And you were just walking and he opened up your eyes. He made you see your sinful condition. He caused you to repent of your sin, to believe in Christ To have faith in his deity and his salvific work on the cross as the only merit for the forgiveness of your sins. He gave you a new heart, gave you his Holy Spirit, and has given you his word to now make you mature 
until one day you see him face to face and are made fully like him. That's a miracle. And that is the greatest miracle of your life. This is what truly matters. This is what is eternally important. And this is what should be sought after with everything in you. First Peter describes salvation this way. Look at this. Though this is salvation, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And guess what you're going to obtain? The outcome of your faith. What's that? The salvation of your what? Souls. And concerning this salvation, let me say a little bit more about this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person of the time or or time of the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They were looking for this, the prophets. They were saying, when is he going to come? Where is he going to be? How are we going to know who he is? And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you. They were writing things down and it was to your benefit, right? To you who had the good news preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And all of this, listen now, the salvation in Christ Jesus, salvation through Christ Jesus. Listen to this now. Guess what? This is stuff that angels long to look into. This is, this is stuff that mesmerizes angels. God saves sinners. What a wonderful thing. Now listen, sadly, there are many people who don't realize this. And this is, moves us closer to what we're getting into in the text. They don't realize that experiencing salvation is what truly matters. Think about this now. There are so many people, so many people in churches. They begin a religious journey. They start to go to church. They're excited. They're seeking after Jesus for the changes that he can bring into their lives. They're wanting their lives changed. They're wanting maybe even the blessings that they've seen other people experience. They're wanting maybe euphoric feelings, even maybe moral reform, like I want my family better. Maybe they're wanting to add Christianity to their lives for other cultural acceptance. They're part of a group of people who are all going to church. Failing to realize, listen now, that the true gain is salvation. The true gain, that's the goal. That's the goal of your pursuit is salvation in Christ. That's the win. Many think that there is something in their minds greater than obtaining salvation, like obtaining a good life here on earth. You're not thinking right. There's no greater goal. There's no greater gain than you would know Christ, but that's maybe not even what they want or they think is most important. Maybe they think a changed life, a better life, a better marriage, better parenting, healing from a disease is more important 
In their minds, that's what they're after. Now listen now, this is really important. That's not the gain. That's not the goal. The greatest thing that anybody could obtain would be salvation in Christ. And what happens when that occurs? Listen now. When we come in for any other reason, listen, you either leave proving to be false disciples because you're disheartened that those things didn't happen in your life because they don't come without salvation. Or even worse, you leave in a worse state than you were before. Because you come in, you experience God's changes just by being in an environment where you hear the word of God, there's healthy Christians around you, things like that. You will begin to like change through like osmosis. You'll be starting to make better decisions, etc. But you haven't experienced true salvation, but then you'll leave with a, a little bit of a changed life and you'll say this, man, I got God's presence in my life. But what you don't have is the most important thing you need, which is salvation. You end up being in a worse state than you were before. This is exactly what Luke 11 describes. Look at this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. John 6 describes it this way. You clean up the house without having a transformed heart, it's, you're in worse state than you were before. John 6 describes things this way. Listen, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, meaning you saw the signs of miracles that simply point to the deity of who I am, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that what? endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? What do we do to have this most important thing, which is salvation? And he says this, this is the work of God that you what? Believe. believe. That's the most important work you could do, is believe in Christ and receive salvation. You don't want to come just clean up the house, sweep it up in your heart, be clean on the, outs, uh, on the outside and unclean on the inside. You don't want to just seek after him for what he could provide for you. You need the most important thing that you could ever have, which is salvation through his atoning work on the cross. Many people come in here thinking that there is truly something greater and their salvation to them is inferior. Yeah, that's great and all, but what I need is right, right now. That's wrong. That's wrong. And you could experience a lot of those things and miss the most important thing that you could ever have. So all of this, I'm just, I'm bringing you, I'm showing you the relevance of this need as we get into the text. That's all I'm doing right now. We heard the main point, this, the superiority of salvation. This is extremely relevant and extremely important. We must realize that what really matters is having salvation and we must realize for other people and help them realize that the most important thing that they could have is salvation in Christ. Nothing else is greater or more superior than that, right? So now let's move into the text, which makes this doctrine or this teaching clear, right? I didn't make this up. This is coming up out of the text, which is what exposition means, up out of, rather than imposition, which is we place our thoughts into the text, right? We take what's the true meaning out of the text. That's exposition. So this main point is just coming up out of the text as we progress through the text and understand its main point. 
right? So let's move into dividing this up. I'm going to divide this up so that we can see clearly from this passage that this is the doctrine or teaching that's coming up out of it, the authorial intent. So how does this context, these words, the syntax, which is the relation of one word to another, or the verses, or the progression of the whole passage, how should this, how does this all bring us to this main point that salvation is far superior. It's what should be sought after, right? So I'm just breaking it up into two headings or points from the information of the text. What we're going to see is number one, the healing of the 10 lepers. And number two, the salvation of one soul, the healing of 10 lepers and the salvation of one soul. That's what we see here. The healing of the 10, the salvation of one. It's as simple and straightforward, but so important and so profound. Ready? To make these points clear, one and two, let's take them what? One at a time. Ready? Number one, the healing of the 10 lepers. Verses 11 through 14. All right? On the way to Jerusalem, and by the way, we're going to get to this main point it's going to feel like we're building, 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 and at the end, it's just going to all come out, okay? Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests, and as they went, they were cleansed. Now, the passage begins in verse 11, where it says, on the way to where? Jerusalem. As you can remember, from chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is going. Now, that's significant because that's where he's going to be crucified, and he's going to die as the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And that's where he's going to raise from the dead for the justification of those who believe. And we read all this back in Luke chapter 9 when he began this journey. 951, it's up on the screen. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, what's that mean? What? Crucified, right? Crucified, taken up and ascended and resurrected. He set his face to go where? Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. That's where he's, he's on his way. So you're thinking in your mind now, we got Jesus on the journey to be crucified. That's where we are in this narrative. In Luke chapter 17, he's still on the journey. That's what, we're, that's what Luke is telling us here in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he's still on the what? On the journey. He's, he's heading to Jerusalem. Now, listen, based on where he's been so far, Based on where he is now, and based on when we see him arrive in Jerusalem, which is what we know as the what? You know? The what? Triumphal entry. That's going to happen in Luke 19. That's when he arrives, right? The triumphal entry. He's spending the first portion of his life, we see, proving to be the Messiah. He begins his ministry journey at his baptism, proving to be the Messiah, the Christ. All these things from the Old Testament are fulfilled. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. The whole first portion of Luke is designed to tell us that. Then he asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the what? The Christ. All right, now we've established it. We're turning the page. Then he begins this journey to Jerusalem. 
where he trains the disciples and where he announces the kingdom of God on his way to Jerusalem. And then we get to 19, chapter 19, I think, verse 20-something. And he's going to begin then what we typically call the passion texts, where he is going to be delivered, uh, tried, crucified, raised, ascend, right? So that's how this is all broken up. And we are weeks away now where we know, as we trace this along, we are just weeks away from, from the triumphal entry. So as we get there, listen, when we enter into chapter 19, we're going to begin what's called the passion text, as I mentioned. Now think about this just a little bit. We're going to begin these passion texts. And it's going to be five chapters, 19 through 24 of these passion texts. That's what's going to be characterizing the life of our church. And that's going to be awesome. It's going to be wonderful to be in the midst of that for, for a significant period of time. So Jesus now is on the last leg of the journey to his death. I want to make that clear for you. Look at this map. I'm putting it up on the screen. We're going to use maps today for, for a second. Remember, Jesus began his journey where? Anyone know? Up north in Galilee. We see in the region of Galilee, Chorazin, uh, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Nazareth. And Jesus is heading south to get from Galilee to where? Jerusalem, which is only about 60 or 70 miles straight shot. So a person could walk from Galilee to Jerusalem in about four days. It's taken Jesus a lot longer than that, right? Why? Because he's weaving in and out of towns, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's preaching the word and he's displaying that he's the Messiah. He's God's Christ. He's the long awaited one. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, right? That's what he's doing. And then he's training his disciples along the way. And as you know, the straight shot from Galilee to Jerusalem would go through where? Samaria. And we don't have time to talk about it right now, but typically Jews would avoid that region for religious, social, safety reasons. And they would head, here's how they would head south. They would head south down the Jordan River until they reached Jericho, and then they would shoot over from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, this was about 20 miles longer, so it took longer. The elevation was lower, so it was what? Hotter. And the elevation change then from Jericho to Jerusalem was about 3,000 feet over the span of 16 miles. So a 3% graded elevation change. And so this was a more difficult journey, but the Jews would take it to avoid where? Samaria. And we know that Jesus took both roads because we see the story of the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4. But we also see a story of him in Jericho in Mark 10. And so you also have to know that along this journey, Jesus has been to Jerusalem prior to the final time he will arrive there at the time of the Passover. He's arrived there for various feasts. He's kept the law perfectly, right? And so now we read in verse 11b, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between where? Samaria and Galilee. So that's where he's at. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to why he's so far north. Because we've already read in a lot of different texts that he's already been through Perea. He's already reached Jerusalem for various feasts before arriving there for the Passover. He's already arrived in the region of Judea because in a place like Bethany is where he healed who? Do you know? Remember? Lazarus, right? That's where he raised Lazarus in a town called Bethany. So he's definitely more south 
than between Samaria and Galilee, right? Now, here's when you read something like that, you say, well, here's one of two options. Here's both of them. I'm going to give you both of them. Either this is not in chronological order, which Luke does very often. He places things by thematic reasons, okay? He's not, he's not, it's, it's not um, false for him not to place things in chronological order, right? He's taking the same events that happened in Jesus' life, but he oftentimes places them thematically, um, tying themes together. Or this could be in chronological order, on the other hand, and it's simply that Jesus traveled back up north. And I think that's what makes the most sense because this has just taken a long time for Jesus to travel from up top to down low. It's, he's just going through various places and he makes through that place once again. Now, stay with me on this. John 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead, but it's not the Lazarus that we just read about a couple weeks ago, right? This is a different Lazarus. This is Lazarus' friend, and then there's a parable of Lazarus that we just read about, right? Ironically, actually, those two accounts have some of the same features, although opposite meanings, which can be confusing, but it's almost like God in his providence did that, which he did, right? And so, but we're talking about a different Lazarus. Now, listen now, he raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, which is right before he enters into Jerusalem in John's gospel for the Passover, and it says right after he raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11 that he went up to a place called Ephraim. So we see that in John chapter 11. Look at this. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. This is right after he raises Lazarus from the dead. But from there, he went to a region near the wilderness to a town called what? So he was in Bethany. Go back to the map. He was in Bethany. Map there. He was in Bethany, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and then he heads up to where? Ephraim. That's going north. So this is pretty clear then. Maybe he then continued north, most scholars believe, continued north to meet the Galilean travelers who were going down to Jerusalem for the Passover. So there's the journey. Jesus has gone from Galilee down. He's gone in and around various towns. He heals Lazarus and Bethany. He heads back up to Ephraim. Now he's going to probably head up to meet the Galilean travelers. And then he's going to go back down to Jerusalem for the last leg of his journey where he's going to be turned over, crucified, die, and raise again. Right? This is where, what's happening. Then in verse 12, it says this. All right? We cover verse 11. Verse 12. As he entered this village, it's an unnamed village, right? We don't know which particular village it is. He was met by what? Ten lepers who stood at a distance. Now, these ten men had a severe disease called leprous, or what we commonly term as what? Leprosy. Leprosy is a, is a general term. Okay, leprosy is a general term, and it refers to a variety of skin conditions. Okay, and the, the most common or the worst condition of leprosy is something called Hansen's, which is uh, commonly what we know as leprosy today, Hansen's. And that discovery is led back to 600 BC, and it was so common in the Old Testament, leprosy was, that in the Mosaic Law, there were plenty of regulations regarding leprosy. You see that in Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14. That's how common this was. Hansen's was discovered by, uh, that is caused by a microbacterium leprae. 
And it was discovered by a man named G.H.A. Hansen in 1873. And by the way, this is the first bacterium discovered to be the cause of human disease when they finally identified this bacterium that causes this. And it was known to be, it is known to be transmitted through breath and through what? Touch, right? And what this, what this disease does is it assaults the peripheral nerves, like on your wrists and on your elbows and on your knees, and then it affects and uh, uh, assaults your skin on your whole body as well as your mucous membrane. And so what it does is it begins to make wounds on the skin, and it even collapses the nose and damages the inner face, which has led it to be called, anybody know? Lion's disease, because the collapsed face of the one with leprosy begins to look lion-like, right? And so it actually doesn't eat it the way at the flesh, like many people believe that it does. But in fact, because of the nerve damage on the skin, people begin to wear away at their skin without realizing it. And so these men were disfigured, people with leprosy. They, are, they, they look awful. They have terrible pain. They're outcasted from society. It resulted in being outcasted from social participation, from religious participation, from familial participation. And as we see in Leviticus 13, this horrible disease, the worst state about it was your condition to be considered unclean spiritually, especially for the Jews. This warranted a quarantined life, not a quarantined season, a quarantined life. And they were required everywhere they went in Luke, in Leviticus 13, it tells us to cry out something, what? Unclean, everywhere they went. Unclean, unclean, coming through. Don't get near me, right? They were feared by many. They were separated from their family, from society, from friends. This is not false or fictitious. This is true. You'd be separated from your wife and children. It was determined also, which is worse, to be God's judgment. Because in the Jewish society, all suffering, they viewed, they had a wrong perspective. All suffering was God's judgment. This is terrible. And the lepers, they commonly grouped together. They commonly got together, and that was their life. That was their community, because that's the only community you could have. You can't associate with anyone outside of that, which is why you see these 10 lepers grouped together. That's their family. The group was more here than just Jews. There's one Gentile who's a Samaritan, which we'll see in a moment. But the lepers didn't pay any mind to this, because they are already considered and declared unclean, so they have this Gentile in the midst of them, even though the law required that they separate themselves from him. So now we see in verse 12 that these lepers stood at a what? At a distance. And they lifted up their voices, the next verse tells us. Luke 5, listen, the lepers came close to Jesus. Jesus touched the leper and he healed them. But these, and Jesus had no problem doing that. But these men here are obeying the law. Leviticus 13, Numbers 5, 2 Kings 7 said they had to keep the distance. And even in fact, even more than that, they had to stay outside the what? Anyone know? The city, especially Jerusalem. Now, ironically, listen to this. They were charged to remain even outside the city six feet what? Away. That's pretty funny, right? Now, listen, but they had it worse. Because if the wind was blowing, all seriousness. You had to remain 150 feet away. 
So you're outside the city, you're ceremonially ceremonially unclean, your skin is hurting, your face is caving in, you're outside the gate, you have to remain away from everybody, and if the wind's blowing even further, and you're constantly declaring out your state, your condition. The only thing worse than being in contact with a leper was touching a dead body in the Old Testament to the Jews. Even an entrance into a space made the space unclean. And so, side note, surprisingly, it's known today that leprosy is actually not highly contagious. Um, right now, people in proximity are more at risk to other people who have, uh, to, get, to, to catching it with other people who have uh, leprosy, but it is, it's very hard to transmit. 95% of the human race has immunity to it. So, but this was not considered the case at this point. So verse 13, what do they do? Look, they lift up their voice and they cry out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Now, they didn't ask specifically for healing here, but for mercy. But given the situation, it's taken as a, as a given. What are they asking for? Healing. Have mercy on us. What, their greatest need in their minds is their what? Their healing, their condition, their, their disease. And they had heard about Jesus. News had spread everywhere. Jesus was in town. Undoubtedly, everybody's talking about it. They hear that he's in town. They see him from afar. They keep their distance and they cry out, Jesus, have mercy on us. And they use the word master, epistatis in the Greek. It means someone who has superior power or authority. That's what they're saying. And the word, listen now, is only used in Luke's gospel in the New Testament. And... And it's used only, other than this occasion, by his disciples. But it signifies not that these men were true disciples, but that they had heard about Jesus' power and authority. Now, that's where this, we have to take a second here and stop. we got to be very, very careful. You see, even the unconverted, even the false disciples, can affirm Jesus' authority and power. You don't have to be born again to, to affirm that. Many unconverted will, cry, will call him master. Many unconverted will say, heal me. Many unconverted will recognize and know his authority and his power. Even unbelievers can affirm this. Even unbelievers can desire his miracle working power in their lives. As we'll see in a minute, even unbelievers can obey some of his commands. Even unbelievers can experience the fringes of his grace. This is common grace. This is mercy that Jesus heals them. Even unbelievers can experience that. But that doesn't mean that people have experienced salvation. That's a whole different thing. You can experience God's what's called common grace, which he extends to every human on the planet. And you can even go to church seeking something more, something that you deem better. One thing that you want, how you want to be changed, how you need your life to be healed. And you could not be seeking the most important thing that you could ever receive, which is what? Salvation. You see, I think we too easily Consider people Christians. Because in our culture, they've had a season that resembles this. Maybe crying out to Jesus. 
asking for mercy, desiring healing, having a th- believing in his authority and his power, yet not looking to him as God, as God's Christ, not realizing that our greatest need is that we are sinners and that we stand guilty before God because of our sin and that Christ has come to provide salvation, believing and then trusting in him and his atoning work on the cross as the only merit for our right standing before God and then living under his lordship by the authority of his word in our lives for the rest of our lives as the proof of our true salvation. That is, that is what matters and that is often what's missed because it's replaced by something that I deem as greater than I could get from Jesus. And what we're about to see here is that salvation is far superior than receiving any kind of common grace or blessing or healing or whatever that Jesus could provide for you. And so they say, have mercy on us, which was a common way for people to ask for healing. Matthew 9, Matthew 15, Matthew 17, Matthew 20, Mark 10, I can go on. Have mercy on us means heal us. Verse 14, move on. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, what we see here is Jesus' response to the 10. They got Jesus' attention. When it says he saw them, he obviously didn't see them at first in his human eyes and mind. And instead of going up to them or summoning them or touching them, which he had no problem doing because he did in Luke chapter 5 to another leper, instead he says from a distance what? Go and show yourselves to the priest. Now the purpose, what he's saying here, the purpose of this is that they would go and be declared clean. He's answering their call. He's answering their cry. Go, show yourselves to the priest, meaning you're going to be made clean. You are clean. You'll be declared clean. How do we know? Well, Luke 5 and a variety of other places we'll see right now. After healing a leper, look, Luke 5, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded. This was the Mosaic law. For a leper to be considered clean, he would go show himself to the priest and the priest would inspect. As This is as proof to them, right? This is how he was to be declared clean. And so he was telling them to do as the law commanded, which is wonderfully, uh, we, we should notice this, is that Jesus kept the law perfectly. After healing the man of his disease, he told him to go and show himself to the priest. And this is even more proof, by the way, that Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. So one of the ways in which we affirm the validity of the Old Testament is seeing how the New Testament affirms the Old Testament. And in these passages, those are some of, these are some of these passages. That Jesus is validating the Mosaic law. Right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books. Jesus authenticates that. He authenticates a lot more, but, but this is one of those instances. And this would last eight days. It would involve sacrifice, ritual, inspection, before they would be declared clean. And you notice what Jesus did not say is, you're healed. 
He said, go show yourself to the priests, right? And as they went, they were what? Cleansed. So you got a picture now. This is the order. He, he, he hears. He gets their, the, they get his attention. He says, go, show yourself to the priest. As they turn, they go. And along the way, they are cleansed, right? And so undoubtedly, part of this, you say, well, why is that happening? Well, there's probably a few reasons. But part of this is he's testing their faith, right? Turn, go, trusting in his word. Undoubtedly, another purpose of this was to show his deity, because that was the point of miracles, right? To show his deity. I don't even have to touch y'all, right? You just go on your way. I don't even have to see you anymore. You could be already around the bend and through the corner and halfway there, and, uh, and I'll just decide when, and you'll be what? Healed. He's the Lord. He's God, right? And so they were told to go before the healing. Now, you don't want to misproperly apply this, right? And they say, well, I got it in my mind what God wants to do in my life, and I'm going to go before. Well, what if that's not what God wants you to do, right? But here's how you can properly apply this. Saying this, listen now. We obey God's divinely inspired word. This is Jesus, God incarnate, telling them what to do. And then they had to trust that he would fulfill what he said he was going to what? Do. And that's how you live your life, by the way. You obey God's divinely inspired word. And as you do, you trust in God to fulfill his divinely inspired word in your life. You understand? You obey his word, his divinely inspired word, not your thoughts, not what you hope, but his word. And you trust that his promises will be true in your life. And so you experience, this is even before you experience the results of his word. This is trusting in his word by faith, right? Abraham heard what? God's what? Word. That was before he had the written word, but Abraham heard God's word. He trusted in God's word. He obeyed God's word and God fulfilled his what? His what? His word in Abraham's life. So for instance, you trust God's word, you obey it and God makes you holy. You trust in God's word, you obey it and God gives you knowledge and wisdom to mature your faith. You trust in God's word and you obey it and God will cause you to be a blessing to others. You trust in God's word and you obey it and he'll heal your relationships. You trust in God's word and God will bring salvation to you and to others. You trust in God's word and you obey it and God protects you and empowers you against sin and the enemy. That's how this thing works, right? So you trust God's word and you follow it. Now, this is an understatement what's coming next. As they went, they were cleansed. I love how Luke does this. He just does understatements all over the place which in fact accentuate his points, right? As they went, they were cleansed. Like, uh, hello, their extremities, the feeling came back, the face is popping out, the wounds are going away, they got the feeling. I mean, this is an understatement, right? But can I also point out to you, this is amazing, but it's also very simple. Notice here, no jumping up and down, no theatrics, No hitting someone in the middle of the forehead. No falling down. No babbling. No big show. No sowing seeds of money in order to receive the healing. 
right? Just Jesus as he does for us. You pray, you cry out for mercy, and God, in his grace, in a very normative way, can do whatever he wants with the cells in your body, right? So Jesus, he brings healing here. The skin came back. The faces are refigured. The extremities come back. They're full of joy and excitement. The priests, by the way, you know how this is going to go with the priests? This is going to be wonderful because the people who were declared to be leprous, which by the way, the priests are the one who declare you to be unclean, are now going to have to declare them clean and confirm something that they hate, which is Jesus's power, authority, and his perfect adherence to the law, right? So Jesus is just knocking out multiple birds with one stone here, okay? Now, we got to move on because we got about 10 minutes and we got to get through the second point, which makes it very easy to get to this now that we've done all this work. Let's move to the second point, and we see where all of this culminates. Number two, which is the salvation of one soul. The healing of the 10, the salvation of one. Verse 15, and following, then one of them, when they saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not the 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Verse 15, let me tell you this. Jesus' miracles, they were part of his ministry to display his deity. This was the fourth of five miracles that Luke's going to show us on the journey from uh, where he was to Jerusalem. In 951 to chapter 19, verse 27, this, there will be five miracles. This is four of the five. And this is, in particular, this healing is far um, superior in scope than the rest of the four. Why? Because the other four heal like one or two people. Here, he's healing 10 at one time. And so even more so, the purpose of this, being God's Christ, coming to earth, presenting undeniable evidences of his deity and the truth of the Christian faith, should cause everyone to say, Messiah's here, right? He's come. This is who he is. This is the purpose of it. Nine missed it. One got it. That's the point here. Nine come to Jesus, believing in his authority, his power to heal, calling him master, crying out for mercy, desiring to be healed. And they got what they wanted from Jesus, and they kept right on going. They would show themselves to the priest. They would be vindicated. They would get to rejoin their family and friends, which is really what they wanted. They wanted the priest's approval. They wanted to get accepted. They wanted to go back to normal life. They were excited. They were amazed. They were feeling strong. They were feeling good. They, had, they obeyed one of his commands, and, and this common grace kind of came through some of that uh, just obedience, and they experienced his gracious act, his common grace. He didn't have to do it but they miss the one thing that truly matters. Salvation. They miss the only thing that matters. And this is the story of every unbeliever. Every unbeliever who has ever existed or will ever exist will experience God's common grace. And yet they will deny the God from which that common grace comes. They will be content with the blessing, with the healing, with the reform, 
that comes from getting near to Jesus. And they'll be euphoric about that. It may look at some point like they've actually had an association with Jesus. But it's not the same as experiencing true salvation, all the while missing the true point. It's what Romans 1 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to their lust. You can have what you want. And their hearts into impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies and among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And instead of worshiping God, they worshiped what? They created things. Instead of worshiping the Creator who is blessed forever. You see, this is what's happening here. They receive God's general blessing, but they don't receive salvation. Verse 15, let me take you through this. The one of them. He turns back when he saw that he was what? Healed, turns back praising God with a loud voice. Instead of going to be certified by the priests, when this man looks at his body, when he realizes that he's healed, he returns to Christ. The 10 men have acted in harmony up until this point, but not anymore. This man breaks free. And in the midst of his exhilaration, he turns back to Jesus. That's what he wanted. That's who he wanted. Salvation, surrender, worship, repentance, obedience, justification. Because through the miracle, he's realized who Christ is, which is God, the Christ, the Messiah. And all that mattered was him. More than going back to normal life, more than embracing his ch children and wife again, more than being accepted in the synagogue. He wanted Christ's salvation. He recognizes him as God. This is God's doing because he praises who after the miracle? Who? God. Christ's doing is God's doing in his mind, right? He recognizes Jesus as deity. And more than anything else, that's what he's want because the Old Testament, undoubtedly, he's understood the, re the, the relation, the reality through the Old Testament of his separation from God, the coming of the Messiah, his need for forgiveness and right standing. And this is far more important than anything else. Look at verse 12. He says, I'm verse uh, 16, or I'm sorry, verse 15. We'll get it right. He turns back and he praises God with a loud voice, no longer crying out in a weakening voice, to be healed, but crying out in a loud voice because he's been healed by God. Verse 16, he falls on his face at Jesus' feet. Now, this is the second thing he does. First of all, what he does in verse 15 is he praises God with a loud voice. In verse 16, he falls at Jesus' feet. That's the second thing he does. Now, we know that this makes clear he believed in Christ's deity. You want to know why? Exodus 20, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 5. 5 we see that who is the only one that's supposed to be worshipped? God. And this man is falling at Jesus' feet. He believes. Thirdly, then he gives thanks. Now, let me point this out real quick. As we see oftentimes giving thanks is a formality. But you want to know what? It's not a formality. Giving thanks reveals the true condition of your heart. 
Whether you believe you are worthy and deserve God's salvations, salvation and divine blessing, or whether you truly understand your condition, your undeserved grace in Christ. That's what this signifies in this man. He understands who God is and he understands who he is. And so listen, can I tell you, this even ties, I think, this passage together progressively uh, and thematically. If you go to the previous section that Doc, uh, David Grantham preached on, it kind of ends with the idea of having no claim on God. He doesn't have to do anything. And here we see kind of this man saying the same thing right, by giving thanks. And so now Luke, up to this point, he structures this sentence, what comes right after this, on purpose, okay? We gotta get this in, and we're out of time, but I'm gonna take five minutes. Is that okay with you? Okay. Now listen, here's what happens. Luke points this out here. He says, now he was a Samaritan, and the way that he structures this is to accentuate it, okay? And here's the point of this. Now, we're getting into the two most important aspects, which are very simple, but the, the most foundational aspects of the whole section. Remember I told you it's going to go, 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 and then boom, it's going to all come out. Here's where it's coming out, okay? Listen now. This is a parable. I mean, this is a true story. It's not a parable, but it acts and functions in the same way as a parable in a lot of ways because this true account gives a picture of a larger spiritual truth, which is this. The, Drew, the Jew's rejection of Christ and the Gentiles' acceptance of Christ, right? This is the Jews wanting something else, desiring the Messiah for healing, society, religious, familiar purposes. The Jews, the Pharisees, not seeing their sinful condition, their need for salvation, wanting to be, listen now, remember we've seen this over and over, clean on the, what? Outside, but not on the inside. Spiritual hypocrisy, wanting earthly reward, wanting to be seen by men, lacking humility. Therefore, they don't realize their guilt before God and their need to be saved through this Messiah who has come. They had no desperation due to God's final impending judgment of them because they didn't think they were guilty before God, nor did they believe that Jesus was indeed God's what? Christ. And so it signifies here them just desiring to be made right before the priests, being seen before the religious elite. I mean, all of this is speaking to a larger spiritual truth that's going on here. They wanted to be delivered from their enemies, provisions for what they wanted, and healing from their diseases. But it reveals the Jews' rejection of Christ. They experienced his general grace. And can I say even by the way, they experienced the Jews did more than any other people on the face of the planet, more of God's general grace from the time of creation until now than any other people who ever existed on the planet. And yet they failed to be saved. How much better, how much more important for them to be saved, to experience salvation. And this ties us back to even the parable that, that Pastor Chad preached on, right? All these men had, right? This man, the rich man, had all of this stuff on earth, but what did he lack? What? Salvation. And this is, this, that is another way this is timed thematically. This is tied thematically. This is very, very important that you get this. The Jews cared about being made right by the priest, not being made right before who? God. This is the Jews' rejection of Christ, and this is his salvation for sinners, for sinners. Now listen now, 
You got to understand, this is very, very important. This is what happens for people all around us. You can come in and desire all these things and not have salvation. And you must have salvation as the most important thing for your souls. And listen, people come in and they truly believe that what they desire is more important than salvation. Salvation to them is inferior. How could that be better? I want uh, the results that God can give me right now. And they are very, very, very um, wrong in what they believe. So this man did like Peter did. Listen, remember after Peter caught the miracles of the fish, he drops down, Jesus catches the, all these, the, the, the nets are full. What does Peter do? He drops down and says what? He says, you're Lord. I'm unworthy. This is what this man's doing. Verse 17, just, we're almost done here, just a minute. He answered, we're not the 10 cleansed, we're the nine. Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then let me just tell you this. He does this very pointedly. It's impossible to say that Jesus never pointed out what's wrong. He always, he just pointed out what's right, as some people do. It's, it's just impossible to say. Read, if you read this gospel, he constantly pointed out error. That's what teaching is. Reprove, rebuke, and what? Exhort, right? I mean, you're pointing out what's wrong and you're showing what's right. And this is what he's doing here in a way that makes many people feel uncomfortable, right? This would make us feel uncomfortable, but this is how Jesus operated. He's showing what's wrong and showing what's right. That's the way people experience true life and salvation. He's, this, he, what he's saying here is making clear these people are content with the miracle, but they're not truly saved. He asks three rhetorical questions. He says this, and he shows the unbelief of the nine. We're not 10 cleansed. The obvious answer is what? Yes. Then he asks the second question. And the rendering of this in the Greek, the where is at the end of the sentence. So he says it like this. And the nine are where? Right? And then in verse 18, he asks the third one, which emphasizes the man not being a Jew or a descendant of the covenant. Right? Again, emphasizing the unbelief of the Jews. And he says, was no one found except this foreigner? Right? And what's implied here is they have the healing, but they don't have what's really important. How do we know? Here's the second aspect of the great culmination. Verse 19, and we're done. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, let me point out here this. The phrase that Jesus does not use in the faith, your faith has made you well is ketherizo, which means cleansed and would be the same word as verse 14 when he's talking about physical healing. The word that Jesus does not use is eomai, which is what is used in verse 15, which would mean healed in the way of physical. He does not use what he's already used as cleansed, and he does not use what he's already used as healed. Instead, when Jesus says this, he uses the word sotso in the Greek, which in the New Testament is only used for one purpose, to describe being saved from sin. It's the only time that it's the only way it's used in the New Testament. Matthew 1, Matthew 10, Matthew 19, Matthew 24, Luke 7. I could go on. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, James. Every single time, saved from sin. That's what he's saying here. Jesus is not saying, where are the others? Well, at least your faith has given you physical healing. He's saying, where are the others? They got what they wanted as proof that they didn't believe. But you, you believed, 
Your faith in me has what? Saved you. And the implication here is this. You have what is far superior than a physical healing. And that's what truly matters. Jesus is saying they were healed, but they're not saved. Matthew 5, we're done, says this. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, sends the rain on the just and the unjust. It doesn't mean that they have salvation in Christ. Let me encourage you with this. Wherever you're at, wherever the reason is that you're coming in here, if you're not a member of a believer in Christ in here, don't come in here for any other reason but what the true reward is, which is salvation in Christ because your condition before God is guilty and you need reconciliation to God through the atoning work of Christ and through trusting in his atoning work as the merit for your forgiveness of sins and right standing before God. That's the gain. If you see that anything else as the gain and that as inferior, you're not seeing clearly. Secondly, let me say this. For you who have friends and friends and friends who are seeking God and yet do not have this salvation or it's clear they are viewing other things like moral reform in their life as greater, make it clear to them. You're not seeing right. The greatest thing that you need and could have is salvation. And if we have it, that's what you should be truly thankful for because that's the greatest thing you could ever have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the grace of, of just giving it to us. Help me to follow and take heed to it just as you um, call everyone in this room to. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.